So, here's a little story about when my wife and I, we used to uh, attend an Anglican church when I was in seminary. It was in Fairfield, uh, Fairfield County. And at coffee hour one time, the pastor, I asked the pastor, I said, hey, did you know such and such about Genesis? I'd been blown away by what I was learning in school. And uh, Ashley was standing right next to me when I asked this question. She, she wanted to know, too. And it was Ashley's look, actually, that I never forgot in this moment. Because the pastor said that he did know what I was talking about, but that parishioners weren't ready to hear it yet. It's been 2,000 years. When, when are we going to let them know? <laughs> she didn't like the sound of that. It was in seminary that I became a trained spiritual explorer, living out the saying. You know there's a saying, right? Churches love when you go to seminary. Right, Jenny, you might, you might hear this. Churches love when you go to seminary, but they hate when you come back. Because in seminary, there was this Indiana Jones kind of feeling. You know, we're digging deeper, and there's a big library, books that have dust on them. <laughs> and we would be digging into them and get so excited about new discoveries, new interpretations, new things we've never read before. But that excitement was often checked. And even the most theologically daring professor in seminary warned all of us one day. He said, you have three years to be heretics. But then you're going to go back to church. And all these questions, you can't ask them anymore. I thought he was joking. <laughs> and for a while, until I found the right denomination, it was true. Some jobs I was about to get hired for in very conservative churches, even though the package was great, <laughs> I was actually afraid they would hire me because I knew I'd have to stop thinking. I knew I'd have to just follow orthodoxy. But then I found the United Church of Christ. You know what their slogan is, right? God is still speaking. And if God is still speaking, then there must be more to be said, right? So here at Saturday night service, you know, we used to have dinner. It used to be very community-oriented. Now it's more kind of that and online-oriented. But I said, you know, why not try some new stuff? You know, we have a traditional service on Sunday. It makes no sense for us to just, here's Max's interpretation, here's mine. But they're pretty much the same. So I thought, let's look at some new texts. New texts discovered only recently, 1945, that come from a time when early Christianity was forming. These are not texts that we found in the 5th, 6th, 7th century. These are texts from the 3rd century. And do you know that text from the 3rd century? Do you know how long it, it takes for something to actually get written? It starts out as an oral story first. It's passed around. So that means it goes back to the earliest days of the Christian church. Because you and I know that there's many interpretations. Have you ever walked down this block? How many churches are there? <laughs> and we all have different perspectives. But back then, guess what they did not want? That. 
because there would only be one Catholic church. That's in the creed. And we as Protestants, we, put, we change that C to a lowercase c. But the original is the big, big C, like God, right? <laughs> before orthodoxy, before the institution of the Catholic Church came into power, we forget how much power they had. They still have power, but they had even more. They could tell the king, we're going to kick you out. <laughs> the kings, they were very powerful. Before the Catholic Church came into power, before people had to worry. Do you know the guy who translated the first Bible into English, John Wycliffe? They didn't want Bibles to be read by the common people. They got so mad at him that he died. And when he died, they dug up his bones and burned them again. <laughs> That's how much they didn't like this guy. Because he, was, he wanted people to say, what do you believe? What do you think about this? You know, Jesus wrote nothing down. He didn't write a single word down. See, before people had to worry about how to interpret the person of Jesus, all we had are four stories, four Gospels. How many disciples were there? Twelve. Why only four? And only one of them has a name attributed. They're all not even written by the people in the books. We're going to learn about that. One is only attributed to John. So where did these books even come from? It's naive to think that with 12 disciples, only one true. I had a professor in school. He said, everybody write what it means, who Jesus, what Jesus means for you. We wrote it on a little piece of paper, put it in a hat, and he read Every one of them was different. Because <laughs> we're expecting something from Jesus. Right? To my wife, I'm a dad and a husband. But to some, I'm a, a pastor. Right? We all have different expectations, different needs from one person. So it's naive to think that with 12 disciples, only one true understanding of Christ could be made. The church tried to make just one story from many. Stories themselves that were an interpretation of an interpretation. Right? They, the disciples themselves were fishermen. They, didn't, right, they weren't sitting there, oh, Jesus is healing this person. No, somebody came and interviewed them. Luke was the most thorough. So today we're going to look at a new story. It's called the Gospel of Philip. And we just discovered it. And it's from that time. No forgery. It's the real thing. And while it may not have been written by the apostle himself, as most books weren't, some of the books written by Paul weren't written by Paul. In one of his letters he says, I am proving to you that I wrote this and I'm using huge handwriting, just so you know. But First and Second Timothy were likely, any scholar would say, they weren't written by Paul himself. And even then, they had scribes, and the scribes themselves were translating languages, so things get lost in translation. So we have to understand that this Gospel of Philip, just like the others, not written by Philip himself, represents a particular interpretation of Jesus, a school of thought around what Jesus taught. And this is where we're going to introduce the character of Philip. 
Now, this was my best friend's name growing up, so it's close to my heart. He was Jewish too, but he's from Queens, New York. The Philip in the New Testament is from Bethesda, Israel. He was an ancient Hebrew who was from the same city as Andrew, Nathaniel, and Peter, the top, the top five <laughs> the apostles. And today we'll learn a little bit about him and set the stage for how the school of Philip created a theme for the collections of writings that was discovered at Nag Hammadi, Egypt in 1945. Again, Philip didn't write this book, but the way that they wrote books, this was common. They'd have a pseudonym. And they would give the name, the, the, like Philip, in order to pay homage to him. Like, this is written in honor of Philip. And so we'll ask today, why is it that this disciple would have been paid respect to by these, by this, by these writings, these sayings that uh, were attributed to Jesus? And if you'd like to learn more about this, you could pick up the book. I didn't even know you would be here, Eves, but the author of this book, his name is Jean-Yves Leloup, and your name is Eves John. So that's an easy way to remember it. And the, the name of the book you get on Amazon is called The Gospel of Philip, Jesus, Mary Magdalene, and the Gnosis of Sacred Union. So who was Philip according to the traditional gospels? Have you ever noticed him in the story? He never get. there's no part in the play. Like, who wants to be Philip? Nobody, right? Who's Philip? <laughs> Philip was one of the first apostles who met Jesus early on. You can find the first encounter. He actually shows up quite a bit. Just got to look for him. You can find his first encounter in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 35, where it says, The next day, John the Baptist, Philip, and a lot of the other apostles, were, and even Jesus himself, were following John the Baptist around. Some of them were even disciples of John the Baptist. So it says, the next day, John the Baptist was back at his post with his two disciples who were watching. But John says, he looked up and saw Jesus walk nearby. And he goes, look, there he is. God is, God is here. The Passover lamb is here. And the two disciples heard him and said, see you, John. Thanks. That school was great. I'm going to Jesus' school. So they are following Jesus, and Jesus looks behind him, and he goes, what are you guys, what are you after? And they said, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? We've been with this guy, John. He said, come along and see for yourself. This is important. Jesus invites them not to just follow him, but he invites them to come and see for themselves. Is Jesus the Lamb of God? Is he the Messiah? Is he the great teacher? Now, you may have heard of Christians trying to convert other people with scriptures. Do you know I used to do this back in my early Christian days? Right on the train. That's, I was at another level. <laughs> I would try to convince all my friends in school that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. In fact, that same friend Phil... He, he was Jewish. He thought I was kidding when I became a Christian at age 15. He couldn't believe. Sean? Sean, the baseball guy, is a Christian? I was never religious. 
and I had no interest in spirituality. You know, my uncles would always try to tell me about Jesus. I'd be like, okay, I'll talk about that later. But when I was 15, I had a personal experience. My mom probably remembers that day because it was, I said, God, God came to me last night. She was ironing. She was, oh, okay, that's, I, how do you take that, right? <laughs> but I came to see God for myself. It was a year later, and I remember the moment. I hope he's not watching because his whole loving Jewish family might be mad that I'm outing him right now. Because Phil said to me, he said, if I wasn't Jewish, I might believe in Jesus too. He saw what a huge difference it made in my life. My mom started taking us to church, and I was like that kid that was... You know, if you see all the Simpsons, I was like one of the Flanders kids. A couple passages down from the one I just read, a disciple named Andrew brought his brother to Jesus. You may have heard of Andrew's brother, Peter, the rock. After this meeting, we are introduced to Philip. And it says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. When he got there, he ran across, he ran across Philip and said, come follow me. Philip went and found Nathanael and told him, we found the one. We found the one Moses wrote about in the law, the one preached by the prophets. It's Jesus. You know Joseph's son, guy down the block, the one from Nazareth? Nathanael said, Nazareth? You've got to be kidding me. But Philip said, come along. See for yourself. Nathanael couldn't believe that anything good could come from Nazareth. It's often the look I get around here when I tell, when they, people say, oh, you're from Queens? <laughs> yes, many good things come from Queens. We got the Mets, Bagels, St. John's University, and me too, right? My wife thinks so, and she's from Greenwich, so she, she can prove it. I hope. But Nathaniel is invited to come and see for himself, not by Jesus, but by who in the story? Philip. Philip is the one who repeats what Jesus taught him. And Jean-Yves Leloup, the author of the book, I said, writes that Philip used the same words as Jesus when he spoke to Andrew and John. Come, leave, and see. Look, contemplate, discover. In another an occasion where Philip is mentioned, we see Jesus offering a private lesson to Philip where we read in John 6, chapter 6. I just preached from this passage a couple weeks ago. And here's a shameless pug. SeanGarren.com gives links to our whole YouTube channel with all of the playlists right there. I've, we've been working on that. So you can, it's like a hub. You can find all these uh, messages. But the Gospel of John, part 3, gives a full layout of John, uh, John chapter 6. But the subject matter, if you don't remember, is based on when Jesus fed 5,000 people. But before he did that, it's, this is what it says. When Jesus looked out and saw that a large crowd had arrived, he said to Philip, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He said this to stretch Philip's faith. It says... He already knew what he was going to do. He knew, already knew he, what he was going to do with the bread. 
But he asks Philip this question because he wants to stretch Philip's faith. Philip said to Jesus, 200 silver pieces wouldn't buy enough bread for 5,000 people. (laughs) They must have thought, what a crazy teacher. Jesus has already taught Philip what it means to come see for yourself. You have to leave what you previously had been taught about God. That's the first step with Jesus. And then you're going to have to contemplate what Jesus might or what Jesus was teaching you. So that you can then discover who God was. That's the formula. He's now teaching Philip that the process to know God would require him to stretch your faith. When you go to the gym, what do you do? You stretch before. I never stretch before games, and I pay for it. But you stretch yourself, and that does what? It makes you stronger. As we learned in my previous teaching, and upon reading the full chapter of John chapter 6, we saw clearly that Jesus wasn't talking about bread at all. You know Jesus was not a baker, right? Jesus spoke metaphorically. That was his style all the time. Parables, riddles, always. Bible says he did nothing. He taught them nothing, but only in this style. Because he was saying that he was the bread of life. And he would feed the crowds that day. But Jesus was a storyteller. And his stories were packed with spiritual truths. And when you eat his word, when you eat Jesus, not literally, when you eat his truth, then your spirit might come alive. It's called inspiration. In spirit, inspiration. And in another passage, in John chapter 14, Philip says to Jesus, Master, show us the Father. Show us already. Then we'll be content. This was at the Last Supper. Jesus responds to Philip and says, Haven't you been with me the whole time? You still don't understand, Phil. You don't get it? To see me, to see Jesus, is to see the Father. So how can you ask, where is the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I speak to you aren't just words. These aren't just parables and stories. I don't make them up on my own, Jesus says. The Father who resides in me crafts every story. Philip wants to see God the Father, and Jesus teaches him a great lesson here. Wouldn't it be nice if you you come to church for three years, and then finally God comes out from the pulpit? I've been here the whole time. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? If he said, here I am, maybe out from under this Bible, maybe he would come out. Do you know under here is the best spot to hide? I played hide-and-seek with the kids in this, in this sanctuary. And that was the best spot to hide, right under there. And they couldn't believe that I would, could fit under it. You can, it's good. And they would run by me. I'd see their shoes. I, I was trying not to laugh. I would see their shoes run by me. You two, now don't tell anybody where my spot is. 
They would run by me, and then I, I could hear them giving up. They would all be giving up. And that's the worst. When you're playing hide-and-seek, and then the seekers quit, they need to let you know. Otherwise, you're just sitting there, oh, I'm the best hider ever. <laughs> they just lost heart along the way. They gave up. Philip wanted Jesus to give him the secret to where God was hiding. Jesus told him, haven't you been with me for three, all this time, for three years, and you don't see it yet? Where was God? Do you know where he was? In Jesus. God was in Jesus. The Spirit of God was in Jesus, and that is what Jesus was trying to tell all of us. That God resides in the words that come out of our mouths. Our words. John 1 says what? In the beginning was the word. Our words. Our words. It started with Jesus' words. And then Philip repeated Jesus' words. Remember? Come and see for yourself. God resides in the words of Jesus. In his life, in his actions, and in his riddles. Jesus tells Philip right after this, Believe me, I am in the Father, the Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you've seen so far. Believe in my actions. The person who trusts me, Jesus says, will not, will not only do what I am doing, but will do even greater things than I have done. Because I'm going back home. I'm going back to my summer house in heaven. I'm now giving you guys... And ladies, the work that I've been doing while I was here. The story of the Apostle Philip trails off here. But there's another Philip. And this is just a short part. There's another Philip in the New Testament. And he's found in the book of Acts, chapter 8. And while he's a completely different character altogether, he's linked to that same lineage as Jesus. This Philip is headed off to Samaria on a mission. He begins bringing the gospel of Jesus to people outside of Jerusalem, where the church was headquartered. If it wasn't for people like this, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. This Philip is literally living out what Jesus said to the apostle Philip by doing even greater things than Jesus. For Philip would take Jesus' truth, God's truth, to a larger community. This is the spirit in which the gospel of Philip is written and shared. It is a book that we will have to come and see for ourselves. You may have heard about it. I bet many of us have not ever heard about it. But until you look for yourself at something, you have not seen it. For who has even understood it? It is a book that you can read and say, oh, it says this, and it says that. But Jesus showed Philip that feeding actual bread to 5,000 people looks a whole lot different spiritually. What is said on the surface may not be what is being said underneath. This gospel of Philip, I guarantee this, it's going to stretch your faith. <laughs> In ways that it has not been stretched. And we're just exploring not replacing, we're exploring, letting it spark our imaginations. It will teach us that God is very much alive at work in sacred stories. 
ones even recently discovered, ones that were banned and hidden intentionally. They will invite us to see Christ in new ways. And finally, it is a book that will maybe call us to do what Christ told Philip, to do even greater things than himself. For though Christ isn't with us physically, his word, if believed, can take up residence in you and I. This week, the kids and I are going to be doing a mission trip over at Caritas in Portchester. It's like a food pantry. They serve uh, meals. They deliver meals, everything. Uh, So pray for me more than the kids. Um, And I'm inviting them into the first part of what it means to be a Christian. To come and see. Come and see for yourself what the love of Christ is. The work looks so hard, but once you see the people's faces, it changes. Everything changes. Slowly I will teach them more, just as Christ did. May you go and begin the journey yourself this week. Here's where you can start. Start in your home. Do a random act of kindness for that spouse of yours. Shock them. Do it for your kids even. Play a game with them. Watch. Something magical will happen. Do it for maybe that coworker if you don't have any of those. Do it maybe even for a stranger. Then come back to church and I will stretch your faith a bit. Always reminding you that God is around here somewhere hiding in these living stories that I share with you. Amen.